Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex, who have we got on today? I'm really excited today. So this lady came to us and we were like, boom, yeah, because she was exactly what we were looking for. So we have uh, with us today Apurba Chatterjee, who is in Bremerhaven at the moment, um, but she was educated in England and she's actually from Calcutta and she specialises in the early modern British Empire with a particular focus on cultural representations of imperialism and their legacy now. Um, You must have been, you've grown up surrounded by evidence of this, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, actually so, yes, because as I was mentioning to you beforehand that Calcutta was the second city of the British Empire, so it just was the one immediately after London, and that's where one would see like all the possible vestiges of empire and uh, like neoclassical architecture, paintings, everything, yeah, so it is also the place in India where proper, in the proper sense of the term, the British society basically started growing in the 18th century with the development of with several political developments actually so there are several things even now so yeah we're thrilled to have an indian here talking about britain and india and the empire um so how are you doing anyway how is germany you're you're ahead of us in getting back to normal aren't you we are trying to go back to normal basically but there are still quite a lot of regulations in place so we can't still meet people indoors and things like that like we are meeting colleagues at a distance in the office and things like that we do go to we can go to walks and things yeah it's it's everything is opening up but very gradually and there are a lot of restrictions in place so yeah, I'm really excited about our talk today. So you look at India during the mid 18th and early 19th centuries um, and yes. thinking about how the arts are instrumental in uh, bringing uh, in imagining distant lands and, pe- and how these are key to Britain's understanding of themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So in the time period that you do cover, nobody can take a photo of India, can they? So of this place that Britain has basically seized and that people are mm-hmm. t- now told this belongs to us. So how do people form their impressions? Well, there are several ways, basically. First of all, there is visual arts. That's what I'm like. That was uh, what was the focus of my work, basically, for a long time. And this visual art is not just uh, something which is 
in the art galleries and uh, in the exhibitions. But the thing uh, is that the motives and different kinds of representations that the visual arts are bringing through, they also get transmitted in other ways. For example, you get the reflection of what an empire could be in things like trade cards and uh, also in different like gardens, for example, like pleasure gardens and things like that. You have more different kinds of Moorish architecture and things like that. And then the English landscape also transforms a lot because of the fact that they were borrowing certain ideas from like what Indian buildings were supposedly looking like and how that, that architecture could be adopted. And then consumption in everyday life, for example, tea, coffee, and then Chinaware and then like porcelain, you have impressions of different things like uh, in very, in many of their material manifestations. So it's not just confined to the art galleries, it's in the caricatures as well. Mm -hmm. Caricatures to some extent can be thought that a lot more people could see them because there were albums in the pubs and uh, coffee houses and things like that. So people can see these things basically. Really yes. interesting to think that how even though it's that far away and 99.9% mm -hmm. .9 of people would never go there and never see it, yeah. how the culture, it's not just us imprinting on Indian culture, it's coming the other way as well. I find that really fascinating. So it's fair to say that the image formed, well, it's, it's romanticised. How does it differ from the reality? Oh, it differs a lot, basically. So the romanticization that you were talking about, it also depends on many contexts. So, for example, the British, on, uh, on the one hand, they're talking about the possible dangers that they face when they come to India in terms of like domesticating a somewhat uh, wild landscape and then getting into it and then basically improving it for uh, the sake of their own rule and also for the sake of the people but when you see that impression in the paintings what happens is like these are really calm and quiet uh, beautiful places which potentially can invite people to come to india for example and apply to like east india company services and uh, take part in the empire so that romanticization depends on a lot of aspects and oh, so some of it's like pr then yeah yeah and then another uh, level of romanticization is involved when it comes to the fact that there are there is a fact of actually uh, like uh, yeah hiding several stark realities of british administration in india for example there were wars and there were also different other policies which impacted the Brit uh, indian population a lot but these things are all glossed over and shown in a very romantic idyllic light in a very georgic landscape Form and things like that so that is something that is operating on various levels I would say so how much of it is political then the stuff that we see mm -hmm. I mean I guess it varies greatly it's, it's going to be a lot less political motivation in a tea label than than for mm -hmm. instance in something displayed in a government building but yeah. to what extent does the the British government use art to back up its political aspirations and imperial aspirations in India. Mm -hmm. So the East India Company had already earned a reputation that they weren't very generous patrons of art. But there is a bit of a problem in this statement and uh, new scholarship is increasingly proving that East India Company did have a very, very strong interest in promoting art and architecture, for example. So East India Company itself commissioned different kinds of paintings. Uh, which are now at the British Library. And on the other hand, East India Company indirectly was encouraging its officials in India 
to commission art uh, from the British artists who went to India. And uh, this uh, policy is involved in there. And the uh, thing that uh, the tea level, tea label can uh, see, it can seem that it is not political directly. But on the other hand, if we see like uh, the trade in tea and different other kinds of exotic goods basically improves as a result of a stabilized political uh, condition of the East India Company in India, for example, when they have this political power that they are gaining, they as a result gain economically as well and their trade interests can be furthered. So these things are directly and indirectly linked. So, and uh, a tea label, for example, uh, as I have seen in my research, it of course sometimes reflects uh, these uh, ideas about race and power, how like, for example, like Indian, uh, if there is something Indian, there is always an elephant. So these things <laughs> actually become very symbolic of what India comes to mean. Like it's a land of um, like riches, for example, a heavily uh, caparison elephant. It's like a land of riches. And uh, these are the impressions that feed into popular imagination. So let's start with the obvious. Artists, paintings, galleries. Who goes to India? What do they paint? And what do their paintings show people at home in Britain? Mm -hmm. So this is a very important question, I would say, because when the Royal Academy of Arts is founded in 1768, it does officially create a community of artists who are involved with the organization. But art market in England is extremely competitive. Not all artists fare equally well. So some of them uh, end up going to India because of the fact that they thought that uh, the economic prospects for them would be better. And in India, with the increasing political power of the East India Company, an English society is basically forming, a British society is basically forming, and they are also very interested to patronize artists and uh, get their lives depicted, get their Indian lives depicted. So the British artist, like the first British artist who travels to India is Tilly Kettle. And uh, when he goes to India, he immediately finds uh, among his clientele various officials of the East India Company. And along with the officials of the East India Company, these British artists also get to paint for the Indian royalty, who now, as they have come into contact with the British through acts of war and diplomacy, they're also trying to take an interest in um, Western art. And these artists basically are the ones who are going to do that job for them. These British artists who go to India, when they come back home, they basically bring with them paintings of their own impressions of India. And one would say that one has to always remember that in many cases, the position of these artists in India is conditioned by the fact that the British political role there is changing and it is becoming increasingly important. And the artists are also politically involved as well. So I can just give you two examples. One is definitely Tilly Kettle. So Tilly Kettle uh, become part of the jury of a very important trial in Calcutta in the late 88, in the mid 18th century. And on the other hand, Thomas Daniel, who was also a painter in India, who was a British landscape artist in India, on his way back, he was actually working for the uh, espionage 
British mm-hmm. espionage during uh, the war with France. So the artists are also politically implicated into the whole question. I would really like to ask. So that's that's one art is like quite a lofty um, cultural impression, mm-hmm. isn't it? And it's limited how many people will be exposed to it. And I suppose something that's much more um, accessible to everyday people or to middle class people at least in Britain yeah. um, would be things that are connected to consumerism, like you said, like chinaware um, and, mm-hmm. and exotic looking things that mm-hmm. people can own. So what are the really popular examples of this and, and what do they project India as and why do people like them? The thing is like this whole idea of exoticism feeds into middle class respectability mm-hmm. and through the practices of tea drinking, for example, and then there are other habits, for example, the ones that uh, are being brought by people who are already who have already been to India and they are bringing with them like habits such as eating curries and uh, the ways of dressing, the use of cotton, increasing use of cotton. These are the things like uh, there is a craze going on in like late 18th century uh, England that uh, the bad influences, the luxurious influences from India are basically spoiling the body politic at home because Mm -hmm. these are being brought by people called Nabobs and these were former East India Company officials who have earned a huge lot of money by exploiting the local population and now with their luxury they are actually polluting the body politic at home. So like middle class representations of respectability and uh, exoticism does have a very important role in it and uh, they are also thought to be in danger because of the luxurious influence of India. Let's talk about the British national dish, which is a curry. Um, Alex and I seem to think it, it, it's back from the 60s, 1960s. But <laughs> okay. it, it, it could, it, I'm assuming it's gone even further back. So can you tell us a bit more about that? So I would say that by the early 19th century, the first curry house was in place basically, and it was founded by uh, Dean Mahomed. And uh, like, and the British love for curry actually goes far, like far, far back into the 18th century. And uh, what happens is like when the East India Company servants were serving in India, they actually acquire a taste for uh, Indian food items. It's just so much better tasting than 19th century British food, I'm guessing. And I would like to give a small example here. So of course. Scotch eggs now basically is kind of influenced by a Mughal uh, food item called Nargisi Kofta. So uh, there are like Indian food and Indian ingredients, spices. After all, we would know that the British went to India in the search for spices. And these curries and different kinds of food items that they were served in various courts, uh, like royal courts within India, fascinated them a lot. So I can give another example of a group of officials traveling to India uh, in around 19th century. And already before going to India, already when they were on board the ship, they are very excited to try curry. So they asked some of the Indian servants that were going back with them on the uh, ship to try to make a curry. So they're fascinated by it, 
really. And Elizabeth Collingham has written a fascinating book about like the culture of curry and how it has influenced British life to a great extent. So spices, the idea of curry powder, it gradually in, like develops more into the century. But uh, curries have impressed the Britons right from the 18th century, if not before. And uh, another thing which I think is quite interesting here to remember is that later in the 19th century, when the ideas, like when the British Empire basically tends to become more and more conservative, at that point, the Mame Sahibs or the like female companions of the British officials in India, they never tried curry when they were in India, but when they came back home, they immediately got fascinated about it. So in India, they were trying to distance themselves from the local population by avoiding all sorts of uh, preferences, uh, like culinary preferences uh, in terms of Indian food. So they were not, they were avoiding curry, they were avoiding like local produce, they were more interested to like, and like European food items and things like that. But when they came back home, they immediately got more fascinated about curry and they tried it at home, basically. That's really interesting. It's really snobby, but it is interesting that they would be like, yeah. I, don't, I don't want to eat it while I'm here because I'm better than that. But as soon as I get home, I'm dying for oh, I just try it. masala. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's hypocritical. I like it. But I, I like this, this like forward march of uh, Indian culture coming into Britain. And so what about, um, in my head, I've got it that there's also fabrics and uh, silks and it's basically used for, for fashion and adornment mm -hmm. and for interior design. I mean, I know Queen Victoria has that whole room at Osborne, doesn't she, that is utterly devoted um, to India and, and it just looks Indian when you walk in there and it's full of Indian arms and everything. So, and, I mean, that's the Queen of England and she obviously was really proud to be empress of india as well when that came in um, mm -hmm. but how does that filter down through society this mother's day celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from blue nile whether it's for your mom a mother figure or yourself as a mom find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation explore blue nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. That's interesting because the thing is like Indian fabrics were very famous all over the world. Chintz is something which is adored uh, like all over Europe and it has a huge market. And uh, we see that if we, uh, if we see the trends during the 18th century, the later half of the 18th century, with the coming of the Industrial Revolution, there is, uh, clothing, uh, there is the manufacture of clothing which is happening a lot in England at that point and that is the national produce that they are promoting and the trade in chins is basically going backward 
And this is because of the fact that it is also related to the differential tariff regime. So what happens is, so when Indian goods were imported to Britain, they had to pay huge amounts of like taxes. But when a you know, British produce goes to India, it does have to pay less taxes. So as a result, the Indian uh, like uh, experts and uh, uh, Indian handicrafts basically face a bit of a decline because they lose out in the scheme of preferential treatment. And in India, in terms of fabrics, had continued to fascinate British imagination throughout the 18th and the 19th centuries, and even perhaps now to, to some extent, because of the designs and patterns, if you would see, those are really influential and they make us think in this direction. And the paintings do have a role to play in this because when we see the paintings of British artists, uh, paintings of Indian Maharajas by British artists, we see them all like very heavily dressed and the fabrics are amazing. Mm -hmm. So these are the, like uh, I would say the impression of what Indian clothing and Indian dress looks like also uh, feeds in through painting. And there were British women who went to India. They got very fascinated about Indian fabrics. They would even go to masquerades and things like that. So, uh, and they would dress up as Indian women. And mm -hmm. they would think, oh, that's, ama that's amazing. That's interesting. So there are different kinds of things that they try. There are levels of discomfort which get, which get conveyed in their letters and in their accounts. Sometimes there is a bit of a snobbishness that, no, we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that level of luxury. But then I have also found instances in which the Mame Sahibs, because they want to keep a shawl being gifted to them uh, by an Indian ruler. And according to the East India Company policy during that time, like during the 19th century, you can't accept gifts anymore. But she was, she really wanted to keep a shawl that had been given by the ruler of Lucknow to her and her husband. So, but she can't technically. So she is agitated that she can't keep one. So there are different kinds of uh, things involved in here. So there is a fascination. There is obviously abhorrence as well. And there is an enchantment altogether. So it operates on various levels. I think, yeah, one of the things that I, so I've just recently, so I'm working on a new book at the moment about George V, but I, I have cause to go back to his childhood um, and dis discuss his brother's trip mm -hmm. to India in the 1880s, early yeah. 1890s. And one thing that you get is a real sense of riches and wealth and jewels and gold. Of course. And, and how, to what extent does jewellery come in? Does it completely revolutionise uh, in jewellery in Britain? Um, so uh, it uh, uh, the answer is both yes and no. Okay. So obviously, if you see the paintings, for example, you do see the impression of what uh, jewels uh, the Indian rulers were using. And then what happens is, like a lot of times when Indian rulers were trying to build some diplomatic contact with uh, the British ruler, with I can talk about the times of King George the mm Third. -hmm. Correspondence with many Indian rulers, including the Mughal emperor himself, Shah Alam, the second, uh, and then also in, uh, with other Indian rulers, for example, Muhammad Ali. So whenever there is a diplomatic exchange between them, Indian rulers have a tendency to gift jewels and jewelries and uh, not just like uh, precious stones, but also different kinds of jewelries and necklaces and things like that to the British royalty. And they ended up being in the royal collection. So Queen Charlotte 
often had icons. She was fascinated about diamonds from India. Mm -hmm. And that actually caused a huge controversy during Warren Hastings' impeachment because he was supposedly like gifting these diamonds which had been snatched away from Indian rulers of Avad and being gifted to the British royalty. And as a result, they're like uh, corrupting the British taste. So basically, like, for example, we know the case of uh, Marie Antoinette in France and how like her liking for jewelry also become a subject of political criticism. The kind of similar situation was also there with Queen Charlotte because she had received all these diamonds from India from Warren Hastings. And that actually was seen in a very critical light by the by satirists and uh, like other people who were active in politics during that time. It was discussed a lot. And jewelry, I think like the no answer comes, like uh, the revolutionizing of fashion in terms of jewelry. I think uh, jewelry, like what they got often got repurposed. So people made them into like more adaptable designs and things like that. For example, when well, Queen Victoria receives the Kohinoor diamond mm-hmm. from uh, Dalip Singh, from Maharaja Dalip Singh, she, uh, she uh, gets it cut and polished and things like that. So there is a lot of repurpose as uh, repurposing as well in place. So it happens on various levels, basically. So some of the things still are in the royal collection. So there are bangles which came for Queen Victoria. One of the that is one of my most favorite objects in the royal collection. Uh, the bangles that came for Queen Victoria from the king from the region of Agra, which is in northern India, and they are still there, obviously, in the royal collection in the same way they came. But many a times the jewelry uh, gets repurposed and also bequeathed, and the, they change hands. How much impact does Indian culture have on things like writing and music? Oh, uh, it does impact a great deal, actually. There is more and more scholarship uh, coming up in this front. So I don't work on music, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, like from what I have read uh, in the works of uh, music historians, the Indian culture and uh, its influences on music are really prominent because a lot of uh, the British officials, when they go to India, for example, and even their wives, for example, um, Catherine Schofield has done very good work on Sophia Plowden. And as she is basically um, codifies and uh, like she basically documents and codifies a lot of Indian uh, classical music. And that becomes extremely like influential as well and what happens in terms of writing well obviously one has to say in terms of the writer in terms of uh, of the analysis of miles ogburn that uh, east india company itself was a regime of writing so writing was very crucial to the making of east india company's rule and also like if we want to think a little bit uh, less officially or less formally what would happen is we would see that uh, indian experience influences the British writing on so many levels. So there are very descriptive letters by British officials to their family members uh, in England about what they experience in India. So that actually influences a lot of this romanticization that we were uh, talking about. And also there is this whole literature, whole travel literature, which emerges as a result of the British travels to India. So that uh, those kinds of accounts are uh, extremely important because so there are there is travel literature which is influenced by Indian experience, British romantic poetry being uh, influenced by Indian experience and uh, like Oriental experience as such, not just Indian, but uh, 
like uh, this becomes very very influential so it has a role to play in the development of the romantic movement back home I I really I don't know about you Alina but I had no idea to what extent Indian culture had permeated in Britain before like the advent of my ancestor or my dad and um, my friends families coming over in the 60s 50s 60s 70s mm-hmm. no I had I had no idea either but to be fair I'm still romanticized by India and it's a place that I desperately want to go and experience the culture and the food and everything that comes with it yeah definitely the food um when when you're researching what are your what are the your most favorite things that you've seen that have been created by British people um as cultural mm-hmm. representations of India. I'd love to know some of the things that you've seen. Well, the buildings, like the of buildings. course the buildings, I would start with them because I did grow up seeing a lot of buildings and uh, which basically are based on like new neoclassical architecture and relate very much to the first days of the Raj in India. So the government house in Calcutta, which was uh, basically built in the times of Governor General Lord Wellesley, and uh, that actually becomes the official residence of the governor general and uh, it still is in use by the governor of uh, west bengal the state which calcutta is the chief city and many many other things basically the whole anglo indian lifestyle and the different kinds of uh, culinary influences so for example cakes christmas christmas is a big thing in calcutta and obviously it's back to the colonial times so christmas uh, is celebrated in the way it was probably done ages back as well so obviously things have changed a lot but it is still quite influential and the cathedrals different religious institutions presidency college the place where i studied is a product of colonial modernity mm-hmm. university of calcutta the first university in the whole of south asia like that is where i studied product of colonial modernity so i am myself a product of colonial modernity in many ways basically mm-hmm. so uh, yeah so buildings paintings art literature music food name it we have it so <laughs> things like that like yeah it it has influenced both ways obviously yeah elena just mentioned um that she still has a very romanticized image of india do you think that the image we have of india today um in britain mm-hmm. to what extent has that been shaped by the period that you study in the 18th mm-hmm. and 19th centuries is that still hold with us i would say that uh, some of the british imaginations of india uh, were founded the way you know india and it is understood in britain basically some of those imaginations were founded in the 18th century and that is how this period is so important because this actually gives you much uh, a bigger uh, picture of india than was possible before and in many ways this is related to the uh, imperial um, expansion that happens and uh, people know about india a lot more they access uh, indian products a great deal they like uh, their lifestyle is shaped by the wealth acquired in india so that is something which is quite important to remember 18th century is that's why quite foundational in uh, making those impressions through which people would come to know india for a very very long time and that's what i argue in my thesis that these are the impressions which are very founded which were which are very much at the heart of what uh, britain understood india to be 
for a very long time. The impression of the Maharajas, elephants, and also lux luxury, jewelry, curry, these things, like all these encounters happen on a much large scale in the 18th century, and they keep informing us for a very long time. Like if you ask me, I would just say that uh, amidst all these encounters and exchanges, it's very important to remember the larger political dynamic of this time. Mm -hmm. So India, when we compare like India and Britain's relation in this time is quite unequal. And through all these exchanges and uh, these ideas of like uh, knowing each other, understanding each other, one shouldn't uh, forget the larger picture of this uh, inequality, which very much informed these relations. I was going to ask you, because obviously the rhetoric, in the, so um, you're in Germany, but over here in the last week or so, we've had a lot of rhetoric um, about yeah. imperialism. We've had defaced statues. We've had people trying to rip statues yeah, down. Yeah, of course. Like, I, yeah, I so, with English news. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was like... I. As someone who is Indian and who studies the empire and you obviously love so much of the stuff that comes out of this relationship yeah. between Britain and India. So mm -hmm. uh, where, like you're saying though, you, you cannot in that, you don't have to be like imperialism bad and nothing good came from it and that, but it mm -hmm. is important you're saying to remember the context in which this, yeah, these Yeah, just remembering the made. context helps a lot. Yeah. Like obviously there were certain long lasting exchanges and interactions we still inform the way we live our lives, the way we interact these days. But uh, yeah, if uh, being a bit mindful towards the context actually helps us understand and appreciate the conditions in which people would have lived during those times. And obviously to understand the inequalities that have been bequeathed throughout the centuries and things like that. So having a context for that actually helps us address the situation in the present times much better. And uh, we can think about the mutual contact and possibly make the best out of it. Thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about Indian culture uh, and the period that you study and how it was already uh, imprinting itself on Britain. And despite the lack of things like film and photography, um, Alina, I don't know mm -hmm. about you, but it's been fascinating. I have learned something completely new today. A lot of new things, actually. So thank you. And at what point during this interview were you on the internet looking for flights to India? Uh, well, let me put it this way. I've been looking for flights to India for a very long time. So um, this has not, this has just made me want to go even more. Yeah, like uh, if you want curry recipes as well, feel free to ask because I am known to give people the recipes of uh, Indian food items. And I personally like cooking English food a lot. So you can say that I'm basically living through this mutual ex uh, exchange and interaction a lot more. Oh, so, I feel yeah. a dinner party in our future at some point when yeah. we can all travel yeah, yeah, again. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much. This is a Sunday and we've now made everybody hungry as well. Um, so thank you once again for coming on to talk. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Join us tomorrow when we will be talking to Richard Hammond. He will be giving us an overview of the Second World War in the Mediterranean and telling us all about his new book. So don't miss it. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower, and I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box 
signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.